You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, it's good to see everyone. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our sermon text this morning, which is in the book of Lamentations still. Lamentations chapter 1, verses 17 through 22 this morning. Lamentations chapter 1, verses 17 through 22. Now, I need to be really careful here because if you remember last week, I introduced the sermon by bragging about the thoughtfulness and the attention to detail that human beings can have, and then everything went haywire. The mic didn't work. The slides were wrong. We tried some new things. It just felt off. I cried inconsolably about a high school basketball game. And then my oldest daughter got engaged. It's been a rough, I'm joking. I really am joking. Jackson is a, is a good dude. We're very happy for him and Hannah. And I'm joking. I do not believe that the Lord disciplined us in those ways because of the introduction to my sermon. But it is a good opportunity to think about what the book of Lamentations is bringing to our minds about that important topic, which is the Lord's discipline. As we've been walking through the book of Lamentations, we're finding exactly what we expect in a book titled Lamentations, a book that is rough. It's hard. It's hard to preach. It's hard to hear. It's hard to internalize. Uh, but there is a great opportunity that we have, and especially this morning, as we consider from this part of Lamentations 1, 17 through 22, the transformational power of God's discipline. So we have an opportunity, which is always helpful as we read God's word, especially a, a, a difficult book like this, to be able to look into the pages, into the words, and really understand the realities that are presented, but also to be able to take a step back and be able to survey some of the big themes like the theme of God's discipline. And that's what we're going to do this morning. In the brief time that we have, we're going to take a step back and consider what is the Lord's discipline, and in particular, how is it transformational in our lives? I think that this is a topic that all of us probably struggle with. I struggle with this. I think the Bible even tells us, as we'll see, that this is something we can struggle with, which is getting our hearts and minds around the discipline of God who does all things good. Those two things don't immediately connect for us. When we're in the midst of God's discipline, we're going through something hard, he does, as a loving father, give us correction, and sometimes it's hard, like it is working through lamentations. It's hard for us to see where is God's goodness in this really dark, difficult moment or time or, or book? And so what we want to see this morning as we spend this time together in God's word is three ways that God's discipline is transformational in our lives. And our goal this morning is that we might come away with a, a renewed appreciation for the value of God's loving discipline and correction. We all could use that, and we pray that God will use it in our hearts. 
today. And it's a good opportunity from time to time. We like to recommend books. Let me do that really quick. We have a, a resource table up at the top of the stairs. We try to keep it up to date with, with books that we think are helpful to our church as a whole, or even as we're working through you know, a sermon series or even an ABF class or other things that are going on in the life of our church. And so it would be a good time to suggest this book. If you have some time and interest in reading more and thinking more about the role of suffering in our lives, which is front and center in the book of Lamentations, you might consider this book simply titled Suffering, the subtitle Gospel Hope When Life Doesn't Make Sense by Paul Tripp. You can get a copy of this book up at the resource table and would be a great complement to the things that we are studying here and in other areas of our church. But this morning, let's consider these three ways. If you're taking notes, here's the first way that God's discipline is transformational for us. Let's take these to heart. Let's think about how they apply and intersect with our daily lives and uh, take this step back together to think about this important doctrine and reality. The first truth that we see this morning is that God's discipline brings clarity about our sin. We've already considered in this book and in many other sermon series as we look at the Bible that sin is disorienting. It is uh, muddying. It muddies the water. It muddies our, our vision and fogs or clouds our vision of God, of life, of ourselves, our place in his kingdom, the role of his grace. And what we need in the midst of our sin struggles is we need a clarifying view. And often that clarifying view comes directly through God's loving discipline. It's, it's important for us to put it that way. We should always put it as loving discipline. Because of the gospel, Everything that God does for you as his child, his covenant child in the gospel, is done in love. There is not a moment of your life from conversion to glory that he is not loving you. Every single moment in every ordained experience, in every moment of struggle, all of it is encapsulated in his eternal electing, saving, keeping, glorifying love for you and me. It's an incredible truth, but in our sin, it's easy to miss it. So let's notice it here. The godly discipline brings clarity about sin. Consider first verse 17 to catch the context again. We don't need a lot of help with this. It's been pretty pretty in our face, but let's look at it again. And then notice in verse 18, the way that God's discipline brings clarity about sin. Verse 17, remember this is a book that is talking about God's people, personifying them and their experience of God's discipline, correction, judgment. Those words all run together. Uh, under the Babylonians, by per personifying them like a city, Jerusalem or Zion. And so in verse 17, we read, Zion stretches out her hands and there's no one to comfort her. The Lord has issued a decree against Jacob, another way to talk about God's people, that his neighbors should be his adversaries, speaking directly to that conquest of the Babylonians, of nations around in the history of Israel, nations around being used by God to discipline them in their disobedience and to turn them back to the Lord his neighbors should be his adversaries. Jerusalem has become something impure among them. There's been a real shift here. 
what was glorious and prosperous and honorable under the diso- their disobedience to God, they have become a picture of impurity. They have become a desolation under his discipline. But now notice in verse 18, this first truth. The Lord is just. For I have rebelled against his command. Now it's the people, the personified city speaking. Listen, all you people, look at my pain. My young women and young men have gone into captivity. So notice first that this this moment of discipline is producing something in them. We've not seen that a lot so far in this chapter of Lamentations. We've heard a lot about what's going on, the suffering and difficulty, the desolation, the hardship, the heartache. And then we're getting little glimpses here and there of what it's producing. Here's one really bright glimpse. Don't miss it. In the midst of discipline, life is suddenly clarified. What had been muddled and fuzzy is now much clearer, and now you have a voice speaking about what that voice can see through the discipline. And it's showing that there is a clarity in discipline about three things. One, we see it put here as God's justice. So there's clarity about something about God. There's clarity about the nature or reality of their sin. That's about them. And there's clarity about other people and what the disciplined person of God should do in response to that discipline, okay? So those are three things. Those aren't three points. Those are three subpoints, sort of. So notice here these three things. First, the Lord is just. When discipline comes, it clarifies who he is. It is a reminder often of something that we've forgotten. Because you know, in the midst of our sin, one of the doctrines that can fly out the window pretty quickly is a God's presence, his nearness, and in particular, his justice. You and I have all been in seasons of sin. It could be all different kinds of thing, things. It could be something really overt, something you really you recognize, you know, presumptuous sins, which David talks about in Psalm 19. It could be something more covert that you don't really think about as a sin. It could be anxiety or worry or being... being um, distracted from what's most important. Those are all things that God brings correction and discipline for. And in the midst of them, it's easy to think everything's cool. I got it all under control. I don't think that God is that serious about this. And I don't anticipate he's probably going to do much about it. I'm just going to roll on. But when discipline comes, it clarifies who he is. And here it clarifies for them his justice, that he is just, he is watching, he is fair, he knows what he's doing, and he's working everything according to his righteous plans. The Lord is just. Now, I do want to point this out because it's easy to overlook it depending on the version of the Bible you have. It's likely that in your version of the Bible, you can look down that here in this verse and through this passage, the word Lord is actually capitalized you might remember that this is a way that the Bible translates, is though we use Lord, you know, lots of different ways in English, that it translates it this way in the Old Testament as God's covenant name. It's the name that he revealed himself to Moses with, Yahweh. His covenant name, which is translated something to the effect of, 
I am who I am. It really emphasizes his eternality. He's always the same. He always is working the same plan. He always has the same power. He doesn't fluctuate or change. He is ever present, ever in control. And of course, for us and anyone who knows him as a covenant child, that just is a fancy way of saying you're a Christian, that you know that he is ever loving you. He is ever present with you. <clears throat> and he is ever using even his discipline to bless you. It says first, the Lord is just. But notice also it brought clarity about their sin. And they're being, this voice is, is being really clear and transparent and honest about sin. For I have rebelled against his command. Don't let key words in the Bible slip past you. Their words are there for, on purpose, for a reason. The word rebel is used for a reason. It's capturing the essence of what it means to be disobedient. There, there, there really isn't a, a, a purely innocent disobedience. It's not a purely accidental disobedience. Why do we disobey? Why do we disobey God? Why do we sin? Because we're rebels. We have still in us, even as Christians, some remaining sin, and that leaves in us a, a, a part of us that is a, a, a rebel heart. And here we see the clarity. In the moment of discipline, all of that comes into view. I have rebelled against his command. But notice third, it brings clarity about other people. There's a, a wonderful change that's happening right here in the text. If you have eyes to see it, you have someone, uh, people who are personified as this disobedient city that have been going the wrong direction, that have been in their muddled, foggy viewpoint, not seeing the truth of God's justice, not recognizing the truth of their sin, and suddenly there's a turning back and now a looking outward. What was a completely inward-looking view is now becoming outward and ministry-minded to the people around them. Notice what it says. Listen. All you people, everyone else, anyone who could hear me, I have had an epiphany. Things are clear. Listen, all you people. And then even more humility. Look. Look at my pain. Look at my life. See it as an example to you of how you should change. Look at my disobedience. Look at my rebellion. And there seems to be within it a heart, a heart of mercy, a heart that is born of God's mercy. My young women and young men have gone into captivity. Look at my pain. Listen, all you people. This is the clarifying transformational power of God's discipline. You might think about it in like a really down-to-earth kind of ordinary way. Think if you had a bad habit, and it was such a bad habit that it wasn't just something like, you know, like biting your nails, I have a bad habit, but a bad habit that actually could produce in you a cancer. And you just sort of lived in that bad habit and went along with it and didn't really give it much thought until the discipline of that cancer came into your life. You know what that's like. Either you've known someone who's had this kind of awakening experience with discipline or consequence, or you've had it yourself, and suddenly you see things more clearly. 
you see your need for the Lord, you see the error of your habit, and you have likely this longing that other people would listen to you and hear of your story so that they could avoid what you went through. It's a very ordinary thing, but it is multiplied to the nth degree when it's placed in this context of spiritual sin and spiritual discipline, as we see here. And it's this important reminder as well, which we're, we want to get at this morning, is that because God's discipline is transformational, it even brings this incredible clarity for us. Therefore, we should not despise it. The Bible says that a lot. The Bible warns us about despising God's discipline a lot. And it does that because we do that a lot. It's our natural thing to do when discipline comes, is to hate it. Even from the youngest age, when kids in our family are disciplined, they always hated it. They never wanted it. They talked their way out of it. They tried to put their hands on both sides of the doorframe to keep from going to the place of discipline. And it's just such a picture of what my heart is like and what your heart is like. Listen to these words in Hebrews 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If we can catch that vision, if discipline can give us the clarity to even see itself this way, we can become the kind of people that will welcome God's discipline because we know who it's coming from. It's coming from Yahweh. It's coming from the covenant God who is who he is and loves us every moment because he has chosen to set his love on us and even his discipline is useful to us. Sometimes a consequence is applied for a disobedience. Other times, you know, in our lives, it can be the sting of some failure or disappointment that we face. Here's the good news. As covenant children of God, Christians, who know him by faith, we know him because of his grace and his mercy toward us, setting his love on us. He's chosen us. He's decided to keep us no matter what we do, and he's going to carry us out to the end, and he's working on us all the time. We can see all of those things, whether it's a consequence for disobedience, a simple sting because of our failure or inadequacy, we can see it as a discipline, a helpful, loving discipline that works something in us, in the hands of God, in the hearts of his people. All of these experiences yield good in our lives, and we want to see it yield good in the lives of others. This clarity that we're talking about is all about humility. You notice in verse 18, it, it's covered in humility. There's so much transparency. The voice is speaking with such humble words about himself, about sin, about others. It really is a beautiful thing, and it's something that we want to capture. And therefore, we want to heed words that we see here and even others from the book of Hebrews. Listen to this, this passage also in Hebrews 12. This is verses 5 and 6. Listen carefully to what it says, because Hebrews says a lot about this. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here's the exhortation. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly and do not lose heart when you are reproved or disciplined by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. It's a fantastic reminder for us coming right straight from this theme and sentiment of the book of Lamentations. And I think it's a much needed detail to such a difficult book. Because when we see this discipline and we see God's judgment upon his people in the midst of their disobedience, we have to see it in light of the rest of scripture that it is all part of his covenant love. It's all part of his, his covenant with Moses. We saw the, his covenant name, right? The covenant with Moses was a covenant that promised that if they obeyed, there would be blessing. And if they disobeyed, there would be confident, uh, consequences. But you have to remember this. That's not the only covenant. In fact, that covenant fits inside of the covenant with Abraham, which we've talked about before. It is a covenant of promise. It is a covenant in which God makes no demands on his people. The covenant that he makes with Moses, that in obedience there's blessing and in disobedience there's consequence, is a covenant that carries them to the completion of the ultimate covenant. So this is just a way of reminding us that ultimately all of God's discipline is not about whether he likes us or hates us. It's not about whether he loves us or despises us. It's all because he loves us. And that's captured in what he's done for us in this ultimate covenant of promise. He's promised to keep us. Therefore, the Lord's discipline is always in lamentations and in your life and mine, a kindness. And it should be welcomed when it's needed. So here's the first way that we could apply this to our lives is to take note, take note of it here. Take note of it in Hebrews. Take note of it everywhere that you find it and take note of it in your own life, the way that God's discipline does a good work. In our community group meetings this week, we'll have an opportunity to talk about this. So be thinking, think about, as you take note, think about how God's discipline has worked in your life. Be ready, be ready to share, even today, if your community group is today, how has God's discipline worked in your heart? And it works as a kind of correction, a kind of coaching. But it doesn't only bring clarity about sin. Notice next, the godly discipline reveals something else, something else important, something else that's hard to hear. The emptiness of what I'm going to call false trust. This is where we trust falsely in someone or something that really is not to be trusted. The Bible says this a thousand different ways. Sometimes it might use the, the word idolatry. Sometimes we use the word ruling desire because that's what ultimately we're talking about. Our, our hearts have been, have been attached to something that, that is replacing the Lord in some way. And therefore, we see again here that godly discipline reveals those false trusts. It brings another kind of clarity. This, uh, in this point, let's just consider verses 19 and 20. To see another benefit of discipline is the way that it, it shines a kind of clarifying light on false trust. Or maybe you could put it this way, false friends. Alliances that we make in our lives with people or things that should not be. We make them sin and idols. Notice in verse 19, this voice personified the people of God under God's discipline. Say this, humility is now flowing like a river 
I called to my lovers, but they betrayed me. My priests and elders perished in the city while searching for food to keep themselves alive. And then it goes on kind of making the point even more clearly, bringing more of that context. Lord, Yahweh, see how I'm in distress. I'm churning within. My heart is broken for I have been very rebellious. Outside, the sword takes the children. Inside, there is death. It's a horrible picture. We see it painted over and over again in the book of Lamentations. But notice the way the godly discipline here is seen to reveal the emptiness of these false friends. Lovers and leaders. That's what the author of Lamentations is drawing attention to. I called to my lovers and they betrayed me. They didn't come to help me. They had promised. This is a reference to the surrounding nations that the people of God trusted in when they should have been trusting in their king. But instead, they made alliances and trusted in them in ways that were disobedient, that were dishonoring to the Lord. And when his discipline came, it revealed to them that they were not lovers at all. You see that there is this sense of loyalty that we feel when we trust another person, even wrongly. We place our trust in them because we feel that that's going to make us invulnerable. They will be able to carry us through. It could be a person, it could be a thing. What other kinds of things could be? It could be gifts that God has given you. It could be a job or position. It could be a plan or dream that you have. And while all of those things are good and they are gifts from God, if they are given too much investment, they become too important to us or we rely on them in a way that becomes idolatrous, we are set up for this experience, betrayal. The ones that we thought would help us failed us. All of us have had that experience one way or another. It might be really big and obvious to you. You might have trusted in someone that you thought really loved you and would care for you, and instead they were taking advantage of you, and it came out in the end. Others of us, it may be something small. We had a certain plan. We were committed to our plan of how my life was going to go, and all of my dependence was on that plan, and then the plan fell apart. And then I was left with this feeling of betrayal. I called to my lovers, help me, we're in this place of desolation, hunger, sadness, heartache. Help me, lovers, help me, friends, allies, crickets. Nobody's coming. But notice also, not just lovers, but also leaders. It's put another way to really make the point. My priests and elders, those are pastors. Pastors are people that you should be able to look up to with the most assurance of care with the most assurance of loyalty. But in the midst of this discipline and the way that they were being led, they couldn't even rely upon them. This is, plays out in the, in the nation of Israel. It's why it's very important for, for you know, churches even to be careful about who are their pastors and to watch them because they're not infallible. They absolutely can be disloyal. They absolutely can fail. There are a lot of people in here and out in the world that have a whole lot of what is sort of being called today church hurt, you know? Pastors are sinners. And here's a weird thing to say. You shouldn't trust your pastors. 
not too much. Of course, you should trust your pastors. Of course, they should be loyal. But it's all keeping in mind who the true pastor is, right? And that's where they went wrong. They substituted these priests, these elders, this clergy, these pastors and leaders for the Lord. And it set them up for a similar kind of betrayal. But notice, we have this other places in the Old Testament, even related to the book of Lamentations. Ezekiel chapter 34, this is one of the classic passages that really comes to mind when pastors are being trained and church members are selecting pastors and, you know, how important it is to be faithful. Listen to these words, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy. Uh, That means preach, preach against them, preach to them. And say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You see, there was a reliance on them, and yet they were not loyal. Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, verse 13, this capture sort of the bigger picture of the lovers and the leaders and and what has happened. And we can take this to our own lives, and you can see it in your own life in some clear ways, I'm sure. For my people have committed two evils. Do you remember this? This is a common passage to try to memorize, to remind us of these errors. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out or hewn out cisterns for themselves but broken cisterns that can't that can hold no water so a cistern is a big like it might think of it as a big concrete or clay um, vessel that would hold water that would then nourish you and instead of trusting in the lord who is the source of living water that can never be extinguished and is always pure and available Instead, that it's a, it's a metaphor that they rejected that and then made their own cisterns. They made their own clay pots, but their clay pots were full of cracks, and every time water went in, it just ran out the bottom. And then they were left thirsting and betrayed by their own plans. This is the whole picture. This is the whole idea of false friends, false trust. You know, the cistern thing is hard for us to think about. I mean, think about it like this. The Lord has offered you a home that is, that is warm in the winter and it's cool in the summer and it's secure all year round. But in the midst of our sin and distraction, in the midst of our fogginess about who God is and our real need, when humility goes out the window and pride comes in, we say no to that home. And we say, you know what? I don't need that. I know what I'm doing. I'm gonna go build my own home. And so you get some cardboard and some sticks and some tape and you go build yourself a house out in the parking lot and you find out real quick that your house is warm in the summer and it's cold in the winter and it is insecure all year long. That's the kind of thing that's happening in your heart and mind when these false trusts take over. When ruling desires captivate us and we place our trust in the wrong person or the wrong thing rather than placing it where it belongs in a true and faithful shepherd. And here again, it's God's discipline that awakens us to this. Rather than depending on the Lord, they depended on their own way. They were deceived. And only later 
under discipline, could they see the error. But then, what do you do when you see the error? You come into the home the Lord has made. It's the beauty of repentance. It's the beauty of God's grace and mercy. He does not change the locks when you build your cardboard house in the parking lot. He, in fact, opens the door because he's the one who's come out, lovingly disciplined you, awakened you to the reality of his home, and he said, come on in. And you should come in because it's warm in the winter and it's cool in the summer and it's secure all year long. In order to do that, though, what we have to do is to identify, this is another application of this text to our lives, identify your false trusts and submit them when you find them to the Lord's control. You bring them to the true shepherd who can change them. He can adjust them. He can clarify your vision of them. But we have to identify them. How do you do that? Well, you need to pray. God is the one who sees them. That's why he's the one who disciplines. So you pray and you say, God, give me eyes to see where my heart has become captivated by something that cannot fulfill me. Okay, go back to uh, Philippians. Show me what I've trusted in that cannot make me happy because I want to be happy and I want to be happy in you. Sometimes we need to have some conversation together. That's a good thing to do in community group life or one-on-one or coffee or lunch or whatever it may be to have some conversation. Maybe open up some conversation with a close trusted friend at church, someone else. Help me think about where my trust is placed and it needs to move. Where is my cardboard house in the parking lot? And help me move out and help me move in. Finally, godly discipline inspires a longing for the final day of sin's demise. When discipline brings clarity about sin, it brings something else that's surprising. It brings into your heart an overwhelming sense, uh, a flooding, captivating, encouraging, empowering, transforming hatred. It makes you hateful against sin. When you finally see sin for what it is, you hate it. You want to kill it. You cannot wait for the day that it is finally put to death. And that's what we see last in the last two verses this morning. Notice them. People have heard me groaning and there's no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my misfortune. They are glad that you have caused it. They are applauding your discipline against me. Notice what they say. Bring on the day. Bring on the day you have announced so that they may become like me. Those are hard words, aren't they? They're hard words that we sometimes keep in, ten- you know, we feel the tension about them in the Old Testament. Because we've said this before. In Lamentations, there's a tension there that we have to work through as New Testament, New Covenant believers because we haven't quite in the redemptive history gotten to the cross yet. We know that it's, it's coming in some way. But for us that are on this side, we have to resolve this tension. There is a sense on that side of the cross 
in which they're longing for the final day, but now that we're on this side of the cross, we can see what that final day is like. We can see what God is up to, you know, perhaps more clearly. It's not only a day of judgment coming. It's a day of redemption coming. That's one reason why we don't go around our community telling people to go to hell. We go around our community telling people there's good news for sinners like us. Come into this house. Come in and join us. But we also do keep in mind that there is a day. There is a day that is appointed. There will be a day of judgment. And for all of those who are found on the day of judgment in their cardboard house without Christ, ultimately in their cardboard house, that house is going to burn. And this is the sense, the seriousness that we're capturing at this point in the redemption, uh, redemptive history in the book of Lamentations. Bring on the day. What we can see in this is a, scent, is a similar kind of sense that we would say, bring on the day, Lord. Put sin to death. Put this thing that has caused me so much trouble, that has produced in me so much sin, so much anxiety, so much distrust of you. Put this thing to death. Bring on the day. This is what we want. It's an incredible picture as well of what discipline does to us because you might think that discipline from God would beat you down and would leave you down. It would leave you demoralized. It would leave you groveling. It would leave you knocked unconscious in the corner of the alley. But that's not at all what we see. We see something actually that's more akin to the normal experience of like adversity in life. Many people, when they face adversity in life, come back resolved. They come back stronger. Think about a, you know, like a physical challenge or a, an athletic venture or something where, where you face some hardship and failure. You probably don't just quit. It produces in you something else. That disciplinary experience fuels you and strengthens you, and we're seeing it, again, multiplied here. The discipline of the Lord is fueling this boldness and this forward-looking approach to life and longing for the day. Not silence, not groveling, not incapacitation, a fire for the day. It says in verse 22, to make it clear, let all their wickedness come before you. And deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and I am sick at heart. Yahweh, help me. This is a longing for the entire world system, for all of sin to be put under Jesus' feet and to be done away with forever, that we may be ushered into his full and final glory forevermore, which those who are in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone will be. Right now, trio, world, flesh, devil. Then, uno, trio. <laughs> we will be with him, our triune God, Yahweh himself, who will care for us forevermore. Therefore, as we close, let me encourage you to do this with your prayers, to infuse into your prayers this focus on final rescue. Like me, you get caught up 
man, you get caught up in high school basketball, you get caught up people getting engaged, and you cannot see past Tuesday, right? But I need to, and I need my prayers to see past Tuesday. So if you're not doing this, you got to do this. You got to put this in your prayers. You got to be praying, God, bring on the day, bring on the day, bring on the day. And let me march out into this day with an eye on that one because I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing. I know that you love me. I know that your discipline is transformational in my life. I see that you're clarifying my view of of your justice and my sin and, and what's going on in the lives of other people. I know that you're revealing to me the emptiness of my false allegiances and alliances and the things that I trust in that need to be traded for you. And I know that you're bringing on a day. Bring that day on. I want that day to come. And until it comes, help me to love your discipline. That's what happens when you back up a little bit and you capture the big picture like we're trying to today. I want to invite you to stand with me as you're able so that we can pray and prepare our hearts to sing about this. And it could be that you're here today, you're like on the live stream, and you're not a Christian. You're not a covenant child. You don't belong to God the way I'm talking about it, the way the Bible talks about it. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, where he's your king. Man, today should be your day. I'm praying that you will be converted. I'm praying that you'll be transformed. I pray that you'll be humbled. We've been humbled by this and that you might join us. If you're here, you should let us know about that. Any questions you have, we'd love to talk more. And if Jesus does something big in your life, we want to know so we can encourage you. And let's pray before we sing again. Our Father, we come to you with real, um, you know, real boldness now because of what we've read. And we come with a you know, renewed sense of our need for your discipline. We give you thanks for it. As far as we're able now, we pray you grow our capacity to be thankful for your discipline. And we pray that everything that we're reading in the book of Lamentations would work strangely to our gladness about you. Being on this side of the cross and seeing more clearly the things that you're up to and, and knowing uh, even a little more clearly the promises you have made and how they're being fulfilled in your word, we want that to draw us closer to you. So help us, help us to, in our daily lives, infuse our prayers and our lives with an appreciation for your goodness and your gladness, your joy over us because of Christ and help us to stay in the home that you have provided in Jesus' name, amen.